Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. A playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today we're talking about Margaret Trudeau. Liv, who's Margaret Trudeau? Well, Margaret Trudeau is so much more than the wife of former prime minister and mother of the current prime minister. And we're here to talk today about who she is beyond the titles that she's held. She's a mental health advocate. She's kind of, she's a playwright. Yeah, I think I would sooner call her an actor than a playwright. So let's start at the very beginning. Always a good place to start, Katie. So she was born Margaret Sinclair. She was born in North Vancouver, where she would grow up. Most Mm -hmm. of her friends call her Maggie. She was one of five girls, the five Sinclair sisters. Her dad was a liberal politician. He was born in Scotland. He's called James Jimmy Sinclair. Yeah, born the daughter of a politician, and she would be around political men for really the rest of her life. Yeah. Jimmy Sinclair was a liberal member of parliament for 18 years. For part of that time, he was the minister of fisheries in the Louis St. Laurent government from 1952 to 1958. And the Sinclairs lived in Ottawa while he was a minister. And then they moved back to North Vancouver when he lost re-election in 1958. So aside for the short time she was in Ottawa, she really grew up in North Vancouver. Can I just say one thing? One thing I noticed about her family, which I always like to take stock of, who were her parents? If she hadn't married a successful politician, like what would her life have looked like? Like I was just curious. And it seems that she came from like a pretty affluent background. Her mom had ties to an Mm. ancestry like who were like founding members of Singapore. And like it seems like she was from like a very affluent family, all to say. She doesn't dwell on it. I mean, why would you? It just would be bragging. But you do really get the sense from her memoir, or well, one of them especially called Changing My Mind, that she definitely grew up in a fairly wealthy family. She talks about how they're very outdoorsy. She talks about how they have like a cottage, like a summer home. Mm. They're, you know, they're they're a two property family. I know that might have meant that might have been a little bit different then than what it means now. But you definitely get the sense that she grew up with money. Um, and we'll kind of, we'll return to that a little bit when she talks about 
the food in 24 Sussex, but <laughs> maybe we'll park that. <laughs> she went to Simon Fraser. She did a BA in psychology and she graduated in 1969. But shortly before that... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but before that... <laughs> before that, she went on a family holiday to Tahiti. Which, again, speaks where... to the affluence of her parents. Yes, exactly. I was like, excuse me, just a casual family trip to Tahiti. Oh, yeah. To go to Club Med. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... <laughs> oh, no, not only did she go to Club Med, her grandfather was one of the founding members of Club Med. Oh, yeah. Liv, what happened in Tahiti? Okay, well, she met... Spoiler alert. She met Pierre Trudeau. Now, so, how they met is very fun. So uh, one afternoon, she saw an older gentleman who was clearly an athlete, who was, I believe, water skiing. And at the time, Pierre Trudeau was 29 years her senior. And uh, she recalled noticing that his eyes were a very twinkling blue. And of course, he was very charming He was obviously an adventurer and intelligent. This we knew about Justin or about Pierre Trudeau, but what we didn't know—fabulous! No, you ruined it. You ruined it. You can't take my joke. Freaking unbelievable! But what we didn't know was that he had fabulous legs. Okay, we didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, though, I, it's something I noticed personally. It's something I would have noticed. And I mean, you, he was obviously water skiing, like, and you've, you've seen him in, like, pictures and bathing suits and stuff. Like, there was, like, a little tiny little bathing suit. So, like, you know, his legs were out. All of his leg. It's not like today, but the board shorts. Board shorts. <laughs> she was 19 at the time when she met Pierre, and he was 29 years her senior. At the time, he was a prominent member of the Liberal Party. He was the Minister of Justice. And although she said she didn't recognize him, obviously her dad and her and her parents did know who he was because, you know, her dad was a member of the Liberal caucus at a point so margaret says after they parted ways for the day her mother asked her whether she knew who she was talking to (laughs) oh yeah 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 they got to talking they got to snorkeling Mm -hmm. he asked her lots of questions they spoke about plato so after this encounter nothing really happens between these two she doesn't hear from him she goes to school she yeah she finishes her undergrad and then she decides to go traveling when Mm -hmm. she's done katie tell us about where she went and what she was doing there so she flies to Geneva, she drove through Europe, and then she lands in Morocco for a while, uh, for quite a while. She stays in hippie communes, she lives in a bamboo house she built on the beach, they have campfires every night. She says she was wandering from hippie commune to hippie commune, and she, ab- <laughs> quote, abandoned her conventional notions of sexual morality. She socializes with some well-known names, including Leonard Cohen, hmm. who she found poetic and spiritual in a way she found attractive (laughs) she leaves this experience she just uses some drugs she's like a bit of a hippie she's a bit of a flower child like so what i found really interesting is that this is just such a classic 22 year old story i think how so katie has (laughs) she has this experience (laughs) she comes back and she just doesn't really feel like she can relate to her family. And I remember because I, 
Because I also went on a trip after graduation and I thought I was, you know, finally a woman of the world when I came home. I think just like lots of 20-somethings who come back from a big trip across the ocean, she comes home to parents who don't really understand the new version of herself that she has recreated. And it's the kind of arrogance that's really only available to people in their 20s, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the kind of, like, disillusioned arrogance, isn't it? We've all been there. Exactly. That's, and I think the best metaphor I found for her disillusionment like with her family is when she gets back to Vancouver, her mother cooks like just the most gorgeous prime rib dinner to celebrate her prodigal daughter's return. But of course our Margaret has become vegetarian during her time abroad. (laughs) Of course. Um, (laughs) Her father describes her as very leftish, which I love. She moves in with her grandma Rose, who she's really fond of. Mm Mm-hmm. Something really important happens at Granny Rose's in 1969. Yeah, I was just going to say. She gets a telephone call from the Prime Minister, who just happens to be Pierre Trudeau. And he invites her out on a date. She gets a call from her mother, who calls her to tell her that an old friend had called the house. Okay. Semantics. Semantics. Someone you had met on a holiday who wants to take you out on a date. I was outraged. A date? I don't date. So Pierre Trudeau was supposed to be in Vancouver for a meeting. So keeping in mind, he won the leadership in 1968, and Margaret and her sister supported him for leader, but her dad wanted John Turner. I think that's funny. And then, yeah, so at this time, he calls her. He is the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So they're dating. They see each other for a while. They're on and off for a few years. She talks about the weekends they spent together at Harrington Lake, which is for those who don't know, is the prime minister's like vacation residence. They were really on and off when they were dating. They were always dating in secret, of course. They broke up briefly, and Margaret started div- dating a divinity student, and Trudeau dated Barbara Streisand. <laughs> that was the best, like, random fact of the story. Yeah. Ugh. She says that she once meets Barbara Streisand, and she commiserates barbara streisand about the men they've shared because i think they both dated ryan o'neill as well oh yeah i think that's right (laughs) so the proposal this is all leading up to the proposal and Mm. the proposal is kind of a (laughs) non-proposal so it wasn't really the most formal he kind of raises the idea first at harrington lake about they kind of discuss marriage over the next few times they're together and before proposing he gave her some conditions he required that she should be, quote, a good, faithful wife to him, give up drugs, and stop being so flighty. Oh. <laughs> Asking a lot. So when you get engaged to Pierre Trudeau, you don't just have to commit to love him forever. So she was an Anglican, and she had to convert to Catholicism. Something else I didn't really know about Pierre Trudeau was that he was quite a serious Catholic. I don't think really. it's really so uncommon to... Like, convert to other people's religions, especially at that time, though, to be fair. I guess not. She had to take French, which, according to her, really, really never took. (laughs) And on March 4th, 1971, they're married in a secret ceremony. Now, I kind of love this, that even his aides just thought he was going on, like, the ski holiday. And nobody, nobody knew. Like, I I think that there's something kind of charming about that. So It's very cute. Yeah, so so the two of them 
not only shocked close friends, but shocked the country by getting married in her hometown of Vancouver, and only 13 people attended the ceremony. So, yeah, so they got married, a very small ceremony, and then for their honeymoon, they went to Whistler to go skiing, which I thought was very charming. And it was actually said that Margaret was a better skier than Pierre. By Pierre. (laughs) Margaret, apparently her dad, Jimmy Sinclair, also drove to Squamish, B.C. to get a marriage license so that people wouldn't notice him getting a marriage license and figure it out. Like, they really did go to lengths to keep this a secret. But then it's funny because the day after their wedding, she said that they received a 6.30 phone call from the Queen of England to congratulate. Nixon, right? And then a telegraph from Richard Nixon. Let's kind of return to where our couple is at this point. Okay. In her own words, Pierre was 51 and the Prime Minister of Canada. I was 22, heedless, not long out of university, a child of the 60s, immersed in the hippie, drug-taking, freedom-seeking culture of the day. Don't you find this so gosh darn relatable? What? She goes, I was a Canadian girl, simple, unsophisticated, and nothing special. I can't relate to that. That's not how I feel about myself. (laughs) Okay, I find this so gosh darn relatable. I was still a very young woman, unsure of who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. I was a romantic with a BA in English, confused with one trip abroad under my belt. I was still so young. I was a Canadian girl, simple, unsophisticated, and nothing special. This is me starting law school, except I was not married to the Prime Minister of Canada. And thankfully, no one was paying attention to the stupid things I was doing at 22. Yeah. I, mean, I found this like, whoa. Yeah. I, I don't think that you picked a relatable way to relate that to yourself, but fine. Um, <laughs> you're like, here I was, 22, starting law school. Like, it's not the same okay. at all. But well, anyway. It's 22 and you're so young and you like think you I, know things. You have one trip abroad and you think that you're like no there one's go. going on that's the comparison that's you was. needed to make oh my god wait what did you think what was the comparison i was making just that i was also 22 <laughs> yes basically oh. and like impressionable um no but i do like really agree with you that it's like i think back to when i was 22 and like how little i knew of the world and like i can't imagine trying to even like maintain a conversation with a 51 year old man like let alone be married to him. Like, I just, I can't imagine, like, really having anything in common with a 51-year-old man when I was 22. Like, I just had no idea about the world and, like, no, no, like, even real idea of who I was. Exactly. Well, speaking of her 22-ness, once the story breaks that they are married, the leader of the opposition, John Diefenbaker, famously says, well, he can either marry her or adopt her. That's shocking. Shocking. Maybe just that. Really? <laughs> that he said that? That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, listen, like I'm I'm not surprised that he said that, but it's still shocking that he said it. Well, I'm I'm wondering whether that much of an age difference was as big of a deal back then. I think it absolutely was. Oh. <laughs> 
10 years. Now like it's we 20... just expected men in their 50s to hate women in their 50s and think that they're and trade them in for a new model. Like, aren't we now only starting to see the sexism in that? Sure. I see what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're like, saying. But I think a third, basically a 30 year age gap is still like a huge age gap that I, oh, totally. that, that everyone probably under their breath would, were whispering about. I, I don't know. It, it also is just like, I, I mean, like, listen, I don't really know that much about like Pierre Trudeau. Like I haven't psychoanalyzed him yet, but stay tuned for, for other she episodes. Has. I'm just like, what? He was this like deeply known as being like this deeply intellectual, like man who I don't understand like what he saw in a 22 year old that he felt like he could, maybe it was just that he like saw her as being like this fresh face that he could mold into the perfect wife perfect woman and that was uh free of like baggage because she did say that right that other women that were closer to his age like had been divorced or had children or had had baggage her psychoanalysis of pierre is that because he is so controlled so disciplined so intellectual such a philosopher Mm. that he was much that's why he was so intrigued by these young hippie free spirits like he was like, dating Barbara yeah. Streisand. Oh, and he also dated the after Margaret, like the other actress who was in Superman. What's yeah, like he seems to be more. He also does read literature. It's not like he's averse. He's so academic and he doesn't like art. He's no, he definitely clearly does, someone yeah. who he really appreciates art. And so I don't think it's it's so strange that he's attracted to the, the more romantic people. But I think it's the juxtaposition that he seems to enjoy. Yeah, certainly. He's, I think he's, maybe he's marveling at how these women can just be when he's such a, he's so disciplined, he's so mm. controlled. So I just want to say that Margaret Trudeau made her first appearance with uh, Pierre after they were married in what was described as being a lacy mini dress. I really liked this quote from uh, the a wife of a former Canadian ambassador to the U.S. She wrote um, years later that it was, if a vulnerable young Elizabeth Taylor, nervous and smiling, was gracing a suburban Ottawa party. People, like, I think, like, as soon as she came onto the circuit, people immediately, like, took stock of her and her beauty and her, her doe eyes, you know? She immediately she seems made to be very smash. vivacious. Yeah. People are really drawn to her. She seems to be very magnetic. Mm-hmm. So this isn't super chronological, but I think this is a good time while we're still talking about <laughs> the happy times. Okay. Let's talk about her boys. Okay, her so first she three boys. So she got pregnant three weeks after she got married. So she gave birth to her first child ten months after the wedding on Christmas in nineteen seventy one. And of course her first child was Justin, Justin Trudeau, who's the current Prime Minister of Canada, you know, in case you've been living under a rock. So after Justin comes Alexandre, uh, who is mostly called Sasha, who we'll just, we'll call Sasha, in 1973. Uh, yeah, two years to the day from his brother, another Christmas Day baby. And her third boy with Pierre, uh, Michel, also called Misha, is born in 1975. We'll talk briefly about, you know, the happy days in their family life, their little family of five. She describes Pierre as a, as a great doting dad who really loved his kids very fiercely. And even when she and Pierre were no longer together, they still continued to, you know, really kind of love and respect each other through their children and continued to co-parent 
in a really collaborative way. Being a mom and having her children really grounded her in a lot of ways. And she took great pride in, in that role in her life. And I think, you know, yes. Yeah, and, and obviously, yeah, of course, still does. And, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we talk about partying in New York at Studio 54 and then coming home to, you know, Sussex and tucking her boys in uh, for bed. Like, that was, like, always a really important thing to her that I think she never really lost, despite kind of, like, the ups and downs and the roller coaster that subsequently followed. So let's talk about the problems in the marriage, because as we know, it doesn't last during there was obviously like a couple campaigns that happened while they were married and in the 72 campaign she uh was at what was at his side at that point but didn't really play a big role and then in the 74 election she became much more of an asset and she moved more to the forefront of the election and and yeah and a lot of people give her credit for for like a successful campaign like she was a she was a part of that so I think that that's interesting. I think while we're talking about the happy times. Yeah. Um, I think her at Those her best. Those are also part of the bad times. So her at pride her. And she's, she's, she's like, I worked really hard in that campaign. And she kind of got no credit. She feels like we'll get into it. She got no credit for it. And everything says, like, the crowd loved her. Like, she did really well. But it drained her. Mm-hmm. And I think she also, like, humanized Pierre, too. I think that was a lot of why she, she was softened so, him up a yeah lot. she gave him like relatability or even like some some praise that i think otherwise he would have never received anyways let's talk about what went wrong <laughs> <laughs> the less happy times so some of the problems pretty early on in the marriage that she felt really isolated she's she feels really trapped in 24 sussex kind of in this role she kind of says of pierre he kept me to himself she says, I love Pierre deeply. We had a wonderful time when the time was ours and ours alone. But once he married me and got me home and I was having his children, I realized I had been put in a birdcage. Mm-hmm. She said that essentially that, you know, she Pierre loved that she was a free spirit, but then he tried to put her in an ivory tower mm-hmm. um, that he kind of expected her to, you know, just be his wife, look pretty next to him, entertain him with like conversation and host dinners for foreign dignitaries. She doesn't really have much work to do um, as the PM's wife. She didn't have her own staff. She didn't really have much going on other than hosting a few dinners. I have this quote that I think encapsulates this well from the Washington Post. In Canada, to be the partner of the prime minister is to assume a stagnant and somewhat ambiguous role. Unlike first ladies in the U.S., they do not have official titles, formal responsibilities, or large staff. Many fly under the radar. And I think that that was part of the problem, right? Because she did, and I think to some degree, still does enjoy being in the spotlight and enjoy feeling like valuable, which let's be honest, don't we all? Like we just want to feel like, yeah, like feel like we have a role and and feel like we're appreciated. And and it's like you said, she was um, an asset in the 74 campaign, but then wasn't really like given the, the... the credit or the acknowledgement that she deserved and i think if you're constantly doing that it can certainly it's certainly easy to imagine how it catches up with her and feels like you know she's just kind of trapped and not getting not being allowed to have any independence or or her own identity 
outside of like her relation to the prime minister. I think that's right. The other one is that I don't think that Pierre Trudeau really had enough time for her. It's hard to know whether he was too busy as prime minister of Canada or he just kind of refused to make time for his family. I'm not going to, I don't think we should be uh, the arbiters of those marital issues, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) she certainly felt like he didn't have the time for her. I found this fact is so strange. He says that they, (laughs) he told her they could make love on weekends, sometimes Tuesday, but never Wednesday when cabinet met. (laughs) Okay. There you have it. It just shows you again how, you know, Pierre Trudeau is so structured and controlled. Mm. He's so disciplined. His his day every day looks kind of the same, you know, where she was romantic and yeah didn't really love the structure that he had. I think that is, I think it leads nicely into my other one about, you know, the differences in their personalities and, and kind of Pierre's idiosyncrasies that, she always says he was very straight and narrow, very rational. You know, his motto in life was reason over passion, where she's she says she's passion over reason. Can I tell you a funny it's story very, about that? Yeah. I'm sure you've heard it. So the, one of, the quilt? Yes, this is so funny. So This is the pettiest thing I've ever heard, and I love it. <laughs> she was quite upset over a quilt that uh, Pierre Trudeau was given by um, a conceptual Canadian artist. And uh, because the quilt, you know, was meant to represent reason over passion. And she was very upset by that because, like Katie said, it was contrary to her what her value system was. And she tore it apart. Now, of course, petty, petty, petty. But the funniest part is the fact that it's, to me, this, like, conceptual artist. And the quilt represented reason over passion. Now, have you seen what the quilt? What does that look like? Have no. you se- oh, my God. Okay, so Katie, again. It's meant to be like a conceptual artist who it and it represented reason over passion. Okay, does it just say reason over passion? <laughs> that like, that I, might as well have been made out of macaroni. <laughs> I died. I died. It's hot, and I was like, it literally says, says reason over passion in like ugly block letters that somebody like cut out in fabric like it doesn't look nice it's got hearts on it too i think that Tear it up. passion Tear over it up. reason getting angry and destroying the reason over passion quilt is <laughs> true is all the only metaphor that we need uh to move on um, <laughs> so again i think that you know it's their personalities are so different you know she's mm. romantic it's like you said, it's like literally the opposite. It's like they have the exact they opposite value system. And that's that's certainly what she says. I think another really big problem in the marriage she identifies is money. So Pierre Trudeau wasn't he ends up being very wealthy. He has family money, but his he didn't grow up super wealthy, and I think that his Pierre's father became wealthy like during Pierre's life. Pierre kind of watched it happen. So mm-hmm. he didn't grow up with money the way I think that Margaret did. She describes him as being very, very frugal and kind of penny pinching. And she didn't have a job. She says, well, she says Pierre wouldn't let her have a job. But so she didn't really have her own money. And it's hard to tell if it's just that he has this nature not to spend or that he's like kind of withholding money as a means mm-hmm. of controlling her, which is, you know, pretty dark. It's something that we know that abusers tend to do um yeah. i'm not accusing him of that because it's just so impossible to know he didn't let her have a credit card or an allowance she had to ask him whether she needed any money at all he insisted she wrote down everything she ever bought including shampoo and stamps 
Okay, but in fairness to Pierre, what we do know about, and we'll get into this with when we talk about um, her bipolar disorder, she does say that one of the symptoms of having bipolar disorder is uh, excessive spending. So I think when we... It's possible, I think that, I mean, listen, I don't know, but it's possible that maybe Pierre saw kind of tendencies to overspend. And obviously, if he's this very frugal man, he's going to put up extra guard to make sure that like he's protective over their money, you know? So I, I, I think that there's just, there's a lot of things at play potentially with that. But the really, I think the fairly bad one <laughs> is that she also alleges that he kind of tricked 22-year-old Margaret into a what we call a post-nup. So most of you probably know what a, have heard of a prenup. It's an agreement that you enter into with your spouse-to-be that you probably contract out of some of your statutory rights. So you can kind of specify how you want to divide things. You can do a lot with a prenup. A post-nup yeah. is really the same. This is not legal advice. But the post-nup <laughs> is really the same thing. Let's not get thing. into prenups. Prenups is an agreement before marriage. That's all we need to say. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. But, but but a post-nup is really, I think, a similar thing. It's just another kind of domestic contract. It's just one that you sign after you get married. Prenup, post-nup, pretty simple. Yeah. Pierre says, we're going to see my lawyer today. To have you sign some documents. She says she, did, she didn't understand it at all. Remember that Pierre Trudeau is uh, not just a lawyer, but a, he was a constitutional law professor. He's very he savvy. absolutely knew what he yeah. was doing. And he, in telling her and explaining what she was signing, he said to her, which is technically true, if I die bankrupt, my creditors won't be able to go after you. Okay. As the rationale for having her sign these documents. So... Apparently, the, when she signed them, she says the lawyer told her, Mrs. Trudeau, you just signed away your right to become a very rich woman. <laughs> I would believe that 22-year-old Margaret had really didn't understand what she was signing. Mm-hmm. I found that one to be pretty icky. Oh, absolutely. But I think also, yeah, I agree with you there. But it's funny because the way she talks about, you know, like getting nothing in the divorce, it also seems to be like a bit of a point of pride because I think she does pride herself on being like an independent woman and I think she didn't feminist yeah like a feminist like she didn't want to take his money I think had he offered it she may have felt differently but I think you know she certainly spun it as um as being something that she was okay with though I I really don't know. Like, if someone was offering me alimony, like, I I think I might take it. And I'm a very then independent you, woman. The people who refuse that are the people with the privilege to not need the money almost always would be my bet. She also only got to, well, she got divorced from Pierre when she was, because she wanted to marry free because she was pregnant, who was a wealthy real estate guy, right? Yeah, yeah. The last big thing is, is I think the age difference that she's just so young. She's having to run 24 Sussex. She's running the house. She doesn't really feel respected by the staff. She says probably due to her age, she really clashed with the chefs. This is the part that I find the most unrelatable in her story. This is the, this is probably the worst. She says, um, after trips to France, whining and dining with her family, she was really unimpressed by the bland meat and potatoes, English-style meals the chefs at 24 Sussex were serving up. 
so it actually gets worse. In her memoir, she essentially pats herself on the back for being courageous, for having the guts to have one of the chefs fired. Mm. This is where she comes off, you know, a kind of a spoiled, arrogant 22-year-old, in my opinion. Mm. Maybe that's harsh. Will I regret that, do you think? No, in, in that moment. In this moment, she comes off. Not to say that that's pretty what she spoiled. was, but in that moment. Yeah. Even even her own characterization doesn't really save her for this bit. So right. I think it shows to me... So this kind of shows to me, yes, she grew up in extreme privilege, but she's just so young. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think 40-year-old Margaret would have been doing this. Last bit, she she's quite anxious about her safety at 24 Sussex. She talks about that a lot. She got really sick of, you know, constantly being surveilled and being under security and just knowing that she might be in danger. But we should say that her fears of her own safety, about her own safety and security and and the safety and security of her children were somewhat warranted because here we are in the midst of the FLQ crisis, which we won't get into. Say That'll be for his future episode. And, um, of course, Pierre Trudeau was famous uh, for saying that, you know, he wouldn't negotiate with terrorists. And um, he expressed to Margaret that that would extend to if she and or the children were kidnapped. So... <laughs> You know, needless to say, she wasn't feeling great about um, what would happen if, you know, she was Abe, that didn't help. Yeah. Oh, you're worried? Well, I will never... Yeah. (laughs) I will never negotiate with terrorists to save you, so... (laughs) All the best. Hope you don't get hit-mapped. Let's talk about the slow march to Margaret and Pierre's separation and some of the early mental health challenges that Margaret has at this time. As a prime minister's wife, she travels with him quite a bit. Um, She's kind of at his right hand. She makes a series of missteps on official trips. Some of these are pretty ridiculous, petty media scrutiny. Hmm. Some of them are... More warranted? Well, there's one event where she took peyote and she sang a song kind of out of nowhere in Venezuela. Well, I thought I thought that she was like meant to be giving a toast and it turned into an impromptu song instead. It was the first lady of Venezuela. First lady, yes, the first lady of Venezuela. She was so taken with her that she just wanted to sing to her, which Same. is wonderful. I think that and she would agree that the peyote helped in in that in getting the song out. The song out of her getting soul. Getting the song out. The other quote-unquote gaffe, which I think is ridiculous, was when she went to the States in 1977 during the Carter administration. She got skewered after she wore a knee-length dress to an official dinner when the other ladies were wearing long dresses. Yeah. And that was an actual media story. Can you imagine? Yeah, I also... How exhausting! But I also, like, think it's it kind of like speaks to i think like a lot of the problems that she had that like apparently this is my understanding is that like it was kind of a rule that you were supposed to wear a gown to the right white house and like she didn't know about the rule right and i kind of felt bad for her i'm like why is doesn't she have an aide who's like telling her that these are the rules well she didn't have her own staff yeah like i like i just think like it's 
it's kind of not even her fault too. And to be fair to like, um, to Mrs. Carter's credit, she doesn't, she totally gets on board with Margaret Trudeau and subsequently changes the, the rules. Doesn't she? Which is women supporting other women. Yeah. We and, love that. And we love to see it. It's not short. Oh, it's this one. I found it. Can you just like, look, can you see how long it is? It's, it's actually past her knees. This is the state dinner. Okay. Can I just say that this, she looks beautiful in this dress so and beautiful. the dress isn't short at all. Objectively. It is past her knees. No, it's like, it's a midi dress. It's a proper midi. I saw knee length in the descriptions. Clearly they didn't look at yeah. the dress. This is a midi dress. The controversy was about like five inches, not like Tim. There's just n- silly. It's just silly. Just silly. Okay. Anyway, so it's unsurprising that you know yeah. Mrs. Carter came to her support. So is there another one that she did? What's the her other big gaffe? Oh, the one that she talks about in her show, which is where she wore heels to meet the queen and then completely fell when she was curtsying, and. She was still holding on to the queen's hand, and the queen like just helped her back up. <laughs> she said, "With an like a with an iron grip, the queen just lifted her back up." <laughs> the next real stressor on Margaret certainly was she really suffered after giving birth to her second son, Sasha. She f- fell into a very deep depression. This is actually the first time she sees a psychiatrist and they kind of just call it baby blues. She says the psychiatrist was largely no help at all. So springtime rolls around. She's feeling a little bit better. Pierre decides, unlike in 1972, where he really left her completely out of the campaign, Pierre and his advisors decide to include her on the 1974 election campaign. Despite her reluctance, they really put her at the forefront of the campaign you know, knowing that she was emotionally fragile after childbirth, she gives speeches, she meets lots of Canadians, and she does really well. The crowd really loves her. She demonstrates some real political skills, and the Liberals win a huge victory. After this, she feels, she says, you know, I didn't get one thank you. She doesn't really feel like her contribution was appreciated she kind of just feels used she says after this so this is a bit of another bit of a turning point so margaret is thoroughly exhausted she and pierre agree she deserves a break just for the day and so she goes on a trip she tells pierre she's going to montreal she decides to go to paris (laughs) montreal simply wasn't enough she snuck away from her security detail and got to the airport. This is such a 19... This is so... So speaks at the time. Yeah, like, this would never happen today. This would never happen. What or What are you thinking of? Well, the fact that she just showed up to the airport without a passport. Yes. And, and they just recognized her. And she was like, can I go to Paris? And they're like, yeah, sure. You're Margaret Trudeau. Like, <laughs> sure, Margaret. hop on the plane. Yeah. And then, and then like... They obviously called ahead, and she had, like, people waiting for her in Paris. Like, she, they just sorted her out. They were, like, everyone re- – she was, like, I didn't need a passport because everyone recognized me. So she spent some time in Paris shopping. But Paris wasn't enough. She wanted to go to Crete, so she goes to the Greek island of Crete. 
But she needed a passport to go to Crete, and so she was able to get one at um, the High Commission Embassy, or the the embassy in Paris, just in case you were wondering about the passport situation. And that's how Pierre (laughs) figured out where she was, apparently. Yes. Because she went to the embassy. (laughs) So, or I think the consulate Uh. in Crete must be. So she leaves Crete, she heads right to New York to meet Pierre for an event where she meets... None other than... Then Senator Edward Kennedy, also known as Ted Kennedy. It seems like such a fun story, but we should say that she describes this as she was extremely manic. This was not kind of a fun cheat my security guards and go to Paris. This was not a first daughter moment. There was like a period of time where there was like rom-coms, but like first daughters and like them running away from the security but no that's exactly right like that's been kind of romanticized but she she describes this event as her being extremely manic anyway what was what what happened to her when she met ted kennedy she kind of describes this as love at first sight i think ted ted kennedy is probably one of the great loves of her life which is just funny no it's just funny because like he denies even like knowing he does I read that somewhere. I'm oh, sure I did. Oh, no! Yeah. I'm sure oh, I did. no. Let me find it. I have to get... I have to make sure I'm right on this one. I thought I read it. Okay, this is what she says about meeting Ted Kennedy. Sorry. It's so sexual. It just feels like you're... Like, your hippie aunt who, like, keeps giving you, like... Too much information. About her sex life and is, like, trying to make sure that you know that masturbation is healthy. Oh, my God. I can't. I can't. <laughs> this is how she talks about meeting Ted Kennedy. Sex is a basic instinct, and sexual attraction can be incredibly powerful. I remember the first time I met Teddy Kennedy. We were at a state dinner in New York. I would later come to know him as a very kind, thoughtful person. But that evening, I felt such a pull toward him that we couldn't even stand within a couple meters of one another. Pierre was not amused. (laughs) This is what Senator Edward Kennedy says. Kennedy later denied... Any romantic involvement with Mr. Doe. So why I said love at first sight, because she says, those Kennedys are so good looking and so well-bred and terribly tragic and haunted at the same time. It was Mm. just the mess I was looking for. I fell in love. (laughs) They were, obviously, they had like a friendship. Obviously, they had something. Yeah. But again, in the, like the whirlwind of this, she attributes to being manic. And Mm -hmm. she says when they got home, she and Pierre had a terrible fight. And she said that she was not making any sense at all. She wasn't really able to rationalize and he could see that she needed help. So this, this whole New York Ted Kennedy event really led her to seek psychiatric help again. And this is the first time she is, she has a stay in a mental hospital. So rumors are swirling about Mrs. Trudeau. She's actually not put in a psych ward. So as not to raise alarm bells for the press, she's put in the part of the hospital where normally men who are suffering from erectile dysfunction are kept. <laughs> but in terms of the Teddy Kennedy thing, like I don't necessarily think that was pure mania. It sounds like it was, I mean, not that things can't be real when you're manic, but you know, that seems quite, quite real. Like she says they talked on the phone a lot and they were talking on the phone quite a bit while she was at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that relationship did kind of continue from afar. I just, I feel like you have to imagine that maybe, like, her emotions, like, were heightened in the moment. And, I mean, listen, he's a Kennedy. He's obviously, like, desirable. So, you know, 
we can't, nobody, I don't think anyone would have felt differently. So all this leads up to their separation in 1977. She and Pierre agree to a trial separation, which she says begins two years of mayhem. So there's a lot goes on in these two years. We want to be very careful not to glorify it because this is where some of the most, you know, kind of interesting, salacious stories come from. But, you know, she describes this time as a time where she was very ill. I have a hard time kind of conceptualizing this, Liv, because she t- seems to take some joy in, the, in yeah. some of this time, at the same time recognizing that she was quite ill. These two lost years, I think that we'll have to begin this section by talking about the Rolling Stones. Yeah, and I think like most, well, most milestones in their relationship, they were kept private. This was a similar thing where... They had this separation and the public didn't know about it. And so in 1977, on their sixth wedding anniversary, Margaret was seen in Toronto at a Rolling Stones concert, which obviously raised some um, raised some eyebrows and got her a lot of attention, not only because that she was at the Rolling Stones concert, but she seemed to have, have some entanglements with certain members of the Rolling Stones. So when she left Pierre, she was going to go study photography under Richard Abiton in New York. That was what she was going to do. She had this love of photography. She really wanted to pursue this hobby. You know, she got it. Supposedly the Queen of Jordan gifted her a camera and that's kind of what, what, how it all began. That's what she wanted to do with her life because again, she graduates university she goes on one trip and she's married and then she's t- 10 months later, she's got kids. You know, she hasn't really had any time to kind of have a career. Yeah. Or even so, know what she wanted to do. Or know what she wanted to do. So it's the night of her sixth wedding anniversary with Pierre, which the media always loves pointing out, you know, how dare she go to a concert on their anniversary. So instead of going to New York, which was the plan, a friend calls her and says, Maggie, you got to come to Toronto. The Rolling Stones want to meet you. And she went, she says she went there to photograph them. So she also went to see them the next night. Apparently she hosted a party for the band at her suite. She says about this. <laughs> um, she doesn't say she had sex with Ronnie Wood, but this is what she says. I spent most of the night with the Stones and all of it with Ronnie Wood. <laughs> Mania is an aphrodisiac for yourself and those around you. Again, in reference to Ronnie Wood. So before this night, there's already rumors that she and Pierre were were split. But certainly the press has a field day with this event, especially the fact it's their anniversary and that there's this rumor that, that she's slept with Ronnie Wood. And in case you're wondering how Ronnie Wood feels about it, he said in his memoir that he had a wonderful time. And her husband's name never came up. After this, she goes to New York and she starts to study photography. And that's really what she's doing. I mean, she also gets into acting. She starts acting in New York in the American Place Theater. Like, she starts to take acting classes. Like, it starts to become, like, a bit of a passion separate from photography. Which I think, like, it does, like, pick up some traction. Like, she Mm -hmm. enjoys. Yeah. She ends up landing an a role. She plays the female lead opposite Patrick McGowan in the film Kings and Desperate Men, which is a hostage drama. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this movie? 
Yes, I have. And I, in case anyone's wondering about her acting, I have a really great quote. The Globe and Mail said of her performance, she looks pretty, especially at a distance. But sooner or later, she has to speak to someone to act. And then all illusion comes crashing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, let's be honest. She only was in two movies and then never even a guest role on a show ever again. So it, it couldn't have been that good of an acting performance, I'm sorry wow. to say. So she's also spending lots of her evenings dancing at Studio 54, which we'll return to in a moment. She socializes with some pretty famous people. She mm-hmm. hangs out quite a bit with Jack Nicholson, who, quote, taught her how to be free. <laughs> sorry. I didn't think that was going to sound as mean as it did. Um, okay, I'll give the longer quote. I, that was really shady. No. I didn't mean it to be. To me, he's the example of what a free human being is, Margaret says of Nicholson. He didn't tell any lies. He didn't make any promises. He didn't pretend. He simply was free. He wasn't going to commit to anyone. He never did. She oh. does seem salty on her one-woman show that, you know. It didn't work out with Jack Nicholson. Well, he kind of said, you know, it's been really fun these uh, past two weeks, Maggie, but Angelica Houston's coming back, so get out of the apartment. Yeah. She also had a pretty famous friendship with Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. So during this time, she was, as she says, doing a lot of hobnobbing with the rich and famous. <laughs> Period. During this time, we should say, she is going back and forth, tucking her boys into bed in Ottawa on the weekends at you know on the second floor of 24 sussex and she's you know simultaneously getting criticized by the media for quote abandoning her children she takes this really hard i think especially as somebody who she is all she is all about her kids she's mm-hmm. just that kind of mom it's kind of a sad fact once she got on Good Morning America to discuss her photography career. She had shot a couple important covers, I forget, but she had been getting some photography jobs. Um, she was there on Good Morning America to discuss her photography, and then she got asked really directly, have you abandoned your children? Ooh. Yeah, ouch. I think this time is maybe best punctuated by the night of Pierre Trudeau's 1979 election defeat. Hmm. Do you know this story? Yes, I do. No, no. I mean, listen, all I really know is that on the night of his election, she was dancing at Studio 54. And so the next morning splashed all over the Canadian newspapers was that really famous picture of her just dancing at Studio 54 without a care in the world. Mm. Um, And I what was the headline? Something like, like something Margaret like. dances while her husband's political career burns. Something to that effect. And she says they spoke on the phone that night before she went out and she commiserated with him. You know, they lost the federal election to Joe Clark's conservatives. They lost 14 seats. And, you know, despite all of her friends telling her not to, she went dancing in Studio 54. But I gotta say... It's a great photo. Have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> she looks she amazing. Looks, <laughs> she looks phenomenal. I, like, don't really see oh. what the problem is. Like, I'm like, if that was the picture of me splashed across the front page, I'd be like, oh, hey. Oh, and she's got the biggest smile on her face. And if I didn't know what she had told us, that she was 
really unwell, I would just think this just looks, I would kind of think this looks like a woman living her absolute best life. Yeah, but it's like, it goes to show that it's never as it seems. So she, again, really, really criticized by the press for this. This two-year whirlwind comes to an end when a psychiatrist who she knows socially, I believe, in New York City, reached out to her and offered her help. She gets put on medication and she decides to, you know, resume her life as a full-time mom. She moves back to Ottawa. Uh, She doesn't live in 24 Sussex. She gets a Victorian house close by Pierre's residence so that they can co-parent. And, you know, they kind of work on rebuilding their relationship as parents, even if though they're not, you know, they're still married for a while, but they're not living as a married couple. So we should say that because Pierce Catholic, he didn't believe in divorce. So even though they are separated in 1977, they don't actually get divorced until 1984. Mm-hmm. But because, the marriage had been over for a while before yeah. that. And of course, like the catalyst to actually getting divorced was her meeting Freed Kemper. Mr. Kemper. So she moves back to Ottawa. She's spending a lot of time with her boys. She's on medication. She's you know, she's kind of in a good a good place, she would she says. She starts working and she starts dating again. And she meets Mr. Freed Kemper. And so he is a real estate developer in Ottawa. And so they married in eighty four and subsequently have two children together, a boy and a girl. And I mean a lot of this time in her life seems like relatively normal relatively private and she said she said that she finds that she found that this privacy was refreshing yeah she says that you know it was just so wonderful to you know be kind of ordinary and for 10 years they're living this wonderful ordinary life you know she's a real vancouver girl she loves the outdoor she talks about it all the time and this guy loves that too he gets on really well with the boys he particularly really really jealous with misha her her third son the fact that they met at Tremblant because they were skiing together again you know they have more in common she finds him very funny whereas pierre was so serious you know she was he was a little bit more like her and you know, at this time, she's medicated, she's in therapy, and, and and relatively stable for a while. And they were also the same age, weren't they, when she met? They were both 35 when they got married. Yeah, and also, I think, I found it really interesting that during this this period of normalcy, uh, Pierre Trudeau also became a father again. The woman's uh, name was Deborah Coney, and they had a daughter, Sarah. But what was kind of weird to me, I just thought it was worth noting that this woman, Deborah Coney, was uh, a member of the Liberal Party. And in 2013, she went up for the leadership race. But who won that year? Justin Trudeau. Isn't that kind of weird? So she went up against the the child of her former lover. And it is a club. It's so incestuous. Anyway, Deborah, the f- and the thing that I found like really interesting about Deborah is like I know we said this before is that like you know Pierre was like dating all these like kind of showgirls, these free spirits. Well, Deborah is like a very uh, well decorated law professor, lawyer who went to like literally every prestigious university that you can think of. 
And so I thought it was like kind of funny in his later life that he was with someone who was maybe intellectually yeah. his equal. I don't know. I, I just thought it was interesting. Or had more in common with him. Like Yeah, they obviously as, had a ton in common. Yeah. They were both constitutional law buffs. That was her thing. She's she's still like a little she was still a lot younger than him. Like she's uh she is sixty, she's sixty five now. Margaret's seventy two now. Did you notice that Margaret went by Margaret Kemper for a while and now she's since rebranded back to Margaret Trudeau? Uh yeah, I did. <laughs> she had her own talk show. Okay, yes, I saw that, but I haven't found nothing found about it. Nothing. Okay, this is this is the, the funny thing about Margaret that I do find. Like, she's very open, and she's very quick to, like, really give interviews and talk about it. And I think as a consequence, she is able to, uh, like, maintain some control over the narrative of her life because people don't necessarily, like go like into the dungeon like trying to scoop up the real story they're just kind of like oh yeah she's telling us and look what she's telling us is very scandalous so like we don't need any more drama so i i feel like in like some ways everything she doesn't want us to know about is like completely brushed brushed under the rug i mean probably if she had if she was like the prime minister's wife nowadays like it would just be out on the internet and available but because it was like a time before the internet wasn't everywhere like I feel like a lot is totally unknown about her and like all we really know is what she's telling us. I also think that though she is speaks so highly of Pierre she's Pierre's harshest critic as well you know Mm -hmm. like she says some really 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 kind of nasty things about him well mostly just that he could be nasty while also you know kind of lavishing praise on him at the same time. She definitely wrote these books as a way to, and did this one-woman show as a way to kind of control the narrative of her life, I think. There's also, like, a bit of a hidden agenda and like, the fact that she's, like, obviously trying to monetize her experiences in her life. And, I mean, in some part, it's, like, necessity, right? Like, she wrote her first book in order to make money because she needed money. But I have to imagine that, like, she kind of kept writing for the same reason. Like, she saw the opportunity to profit yeah. off of like her name and her story and like honestly like you, i can't really falter for that like i would do the exact same thing that's what they all do that's what the politicians do too and their partners like that's just what it yeah is. okay so during this time when she's married to fred you know they have many happy years she has some very happy years with freed and her two youngest children she as we said she enjoys the normalcy she enjoys ordinary life but she has a series of tragedies that kind of progressively darken her mood. She loses two friends. She miscarries uh, after Alicia. Her dog passes. Freed's business starts to struggle. I believe that he goes bankrupt at some point. And so they're struggling financially, or I don't know, which I don't know what that means to Margaret Trudeau to struggle financially, but certainly their income has changed. And these stressors kind of begin to mount and she starts, you know, really struggling. She has another visit to a psych ward in 1998 her doctor changed her, the dose of her medication really drastically, which led to a, a pretty significant imbalance and a manic episode. So again, she's on the psych ward. She calls it the most humiliating experience of my life. She really struggles. I guess th- I think this is the visit where one of the patients who sees her <laughs> says, wow, that woman thinks she's Margaret Trudeau. Oh, yeah. 
but clearly she was, you know, so recognized, so unrecognizable to the public, you know, in this state. Or perhaps the other woman wasn't necessarily in touch with reality. Perhaps, yeah. I think in the book she's using it as like a very out of body experience, yeah. you know, that it was very surreal that, and it certainly seemed that way to outsiders, I guess. Yeah. You know, if she didn't even look like herself. Hmm. This leads her to the two twin tragedies. The first one came in 98 when her youngest son with Pierre Trudeau, Michelle, died in an avalanche in BC. And she actually told, I thought, such a beautiful story about this situation, um, about the last time that she saw him in her one-woman show. I I honestly almost cried when she said it because she said that he, just before he was off for this trip, he drove off and for kind of seemingly no reason he just stopped in the middle of the road got out of his car and ran back to give her a hug and to tell her that he loved her and and that was the last time she ever saw him which i think is so sad but also kind of like there's like some beauty in in that and so and so yeah that was obviously a terrible tragedy for the for the entire family and i don't think that she was alone in um really really hard struggle with that it seemed that pierre had a really tough time with his uh with his uh passing and pierre at the time was of course struggling with parkinson's disease and then he was diagnosed with cancer and um they caught it quite early but uh margaret said that at that point he had kind of lost the will to live and was having a really tough time and he didn't want to fight his cancer and so he died. He died in 2000, which was very sh- soon after. I mean, obviously, at this point in their lives, they had reconciled and um, were, you know, had raised children together and were in a really good place in their relationship. And so I think the the loss of both her, her son and her former husband was really just too great for her. And it led to... Kind of like I think her what she would describe as like her ultimate breakdown and like the lowest point of her life. Do we want to say anything about the fu- the Pierre Trudeau's funeral? She describes being so physically weak that she almost fell, mm. or so overcome with emotion at some point she almost fell at his funeral. And she's this is kind of a celebrity story. Mm. She felt a hand on her shoulder, and it was Jimmy Carter. And then I guess it happened again that she almost she felt fell. A hand on her yeah. shoulder. <laughs> And it was Fidel Castro. <laughs> so this leads to a spiral. She drops 50, 30 pounds. She can't leave the house. She's around 50 at this time. Um, she told her doctor she wanted to be put in a medically induced coma mm-hmm. just to make it stop. Um, and that she seems to see that, you know, Pierre's death was the final straw. She was in a, a psychotic state mm-hmm. at this point. And sorry, can I just also say that during this time, you know, when people, she kind of talks about having a little bit of a mask on. And so her family didn't necessarily know how, um, how bad it had gotten. And, you know, people would call to check on her and, and she recounts the story of Justin calling to check in and she just tells him, you know, she's got cookies in the oven. She can't really talk. Like she's got a bridge club coming over. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's kind of how it got so bad because like her family didn't really know until sasha discovered her right and this is the event that leads to her bipolar diagnosis i think before um 
for those who don't know, bipolar is what we would have before called man, uh, manic depression. So this event, though tragic in my interpretation, is well, this is how she narrativizes it, is kind of her hitting bottom so that she's able to finally get the treatment that she needs and reconcile with uh, her bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of what leads to her coming to terms with it and, and you know, learning how to really live yeah. with it and kind of embrace her diagnosis. So, yeah, this was the particular event, you know, her family had to intervene. Sasha found her very disoriented and, um, you know, in a, in a state of psychosis. And she, I've heard her say, on the edge of death. Yeah, the police were called. She apparently escaped at one point and she ended up being taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair, I find this to be like part of the most like what makes her the most relatable in her her journey is obviously like her diagnosis, but also like I think just the grief. I think that, you know, like so, so many times when we look at politicians, like especially with like Joe Biden comes to mind, is that what makes them human or what makes these celebrities human is like the the human experiences that they have to go through, like the grief that they have to endure. And I think probably anyone who's lost a child, like I can't, I can't imagine the grief that that must be and like how hard that is to deal with. And um, yeah, I think that this is like the part of her story that makes her the most human. In coming to terms with her diagnosis, she, I guess, comes out as bipolar in 2006 Mm -hmm. when she starts speaking about it in public going through this and, and and learning to live with it, you know, she decides to embrace it and in the hopes that speaking on it will help others and, and reduce some of the stigma. She becomes a mental health advocate. She gives speeches on mental health, you know, in effort to reduce the stigma around mental illness. She also, you know, the way she speaks about her bipolar now, she does, she has found a way kind of, well, at least it appears to learn to love herself with it. You know, she says, mm-hmm. I think it's, it is a gift to be bipolar in a way because we're lots of fun mm-hmm. and we are compassionate too, because we've known what sorrow is. Mm-hmm. I think just to, uh, I think like a fun fact is that in, um, so along as part of her advocacy work, she obviously uh, spoke at many we events, which um, I'm sure we will mm. talk about in, in more detail in a further episode about the very, you know, in the news we scandal. So she obviously was doing this woman, the woman show, so she had to, you know, go and uh, promote it. She was on George Stromalopoulos' show. And he, in my opinion, asked her the most important question that really anyone could ask. And it was this. Was she upset that none of her children got to host Canadian Idol? <sighs> Recently, honestly, has uh, was it in a one-woman show called Certain Women of an Age. Basically, it's an hour and a half long show where she stands on on the stage and talks about all her life really and so katie and i both both listened to the audio book of it audio book version of the show and i have to say like honestly i was really impressed because loved it yeah like i really enjoyed it first of all and um obviously we didn't like see it in person but commanding the stage for an hour and a half by yourself isn't 
really no easy feat. So the fact that she did it and like really did it well, I think is very impressive. So this show is structured uh, with five questions. The most popular tidbit that, that's been pulled from the show and, and, and been talked about and she gets asked about in interviews is she gives a list. I forget which part of the five questions it's, it is a part of, but she says five ways being a patient in a psychiatric hospital is similar to being married to the prime minister. <laughs> she says, there's a whole lot of staff of people around who are very nice and friendly, who are constantly checking in on you. And the whole time, you know, they think you're crazy. <laughs> Second, you have a place to live that's not really your home. You can only redecorate so much. And it's up to someone else how long you'll live there. Mm. Three, you're shuttled around the place. You're told where to be, where to stand, where to sit, poked, prodded, and pulled with little consideration for your privacy. There's protocol for everything. When you can see people, what they can give you, and when you can go to the bathroom. Five, surveillance. And this was a time when she was on CO, which is constant observation, Mm. um, which she found extremely humiliating and the same is true when you're married to the prime minister you are you know constantly surveilled yep you can see that she's like she does that this show and the way she talks about it she does bring comedy into some of the darker points of her life in a way that's a real i think a real way in and for people and yeah it's uh wonderfully relatable most of the time yeah i thought her second question well so okay we should say that the first question was are you a feminist to which she answers yes we haven't talked a lot about her feminism so katie what do you think is she a feminist (laughs) oh listen i'm not the (laughs) feminist you can tell by the way she writes too in her book that you know she views a lot of things through the prism of you know, the rights mm. of women and the power of women. And so I wasn't surprised to find this, but I think that talking about feminism is interesting because this is really as about as political as she gets. Like she's really not, mm-hmm. I was remarking to live off, um, off mic, just how she just seems to hate politics mm. and she really wants nothing to do with it. Despite being surrounded by political men, her entire life. Now she gives an anecdote about, Pierre, so she's actually very, in the show, she's kind of critical about Pierre's supposed progressivism. Mm. She says, Pierre was very progressive. He was a feminist as long as he wasn't married to you. Mm. No. When she and Pierre were at 24 Sussex, Gloria Steinem sent her a present. It was a subscription to Miss, which is a liberal feminist magazine. She was delighted. However, Pierre was less than impressed. Hmm. It seems ironic that the man who established Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms would take issue with his wife reading Miss. For all his ideals, I think Pierre, like many men of his generation, believed that true equality stopped at his front door. Mm. Oh, wait, the best line, though, is, yes, I'm a feminist, but to be honest, I think women are far superior. Yes. Yeah, she doesn't believe in the equality of men and women because she thinks women are far superior. Like, you see her throughout her life, I think... Uh, the very like the constant struggle that I think was the epitome of women in the 80s where they were balancing this desire to be um, you know independent and have their own life and yet they still had those kind of like 50s values and traditional ideas of what a woman's role in the household and as a caregiver should be and and I think it's just interesting to kind of like watch her go through that internal struggle in a lot of ways and I think that like honestly like that's something that like is still very relatable for two 
you know, career gals such as ourselves. I know you hate it when I say gals, so I threw that in there. Okay, so the question number two was if she found it hard to be so beautiful. This was, like, meant to be, like, a joke, obviously, because she was, like... But what I thought, the most interesting thing that I pulled from this section in particular... I mean, this was obviously the section where she talked about, like, all of her scandals and all of her romantic entanglements. But what I found to be the most interesting part of what she said here was that beauty was the price of admission. I just felt it, like, was... It was just, like, such an honest read on the situation that like if she hadn't been beautiful if she hadn't yeah if she if she really hadn't been beautiful she wouldn't have been given the same opportunities to like go dancing at studio 54 to have like these relationships with powerful men or famous men or whatever and i and i just like thought it was like a rare admission from a celebrity of that it was like important to be beautiful question four was did she believe in god and here she gave a very interesting story about a time that she had an audience with Pope John Paul II and how she felt that it literally patted her on the head. Yeah. So she felt um obviously insulted and patronized when she, you know, kind of wanted to ask him questions or you know what was on her mind at that moment and he gave the opportunity to Pierre, but didn't give the opportunity to Margaret and then patted her on the head and congratulated her for having three beautiful boys. That's kind of like, I guess, all the value that she she had to him, that she was a mother. Anyway, and then how she got through it all. Question five was how she got through it all. And here, you know, she spoke about the, the tragedies in her life. Yeah, that, that was her one-woman show. It, it seemed to have gotten pretty good reviews and and like katie and i said like we both found it really really enjoyable so you know just shout out to her and her one of the shows highly highly recommend yeah the audiobook obviously the show's over but you can the audiobook lives forever just to i think conclude so in 2007 she moved to montreal to be closer to family obviously at the time the gang was all there the gang is very close by now some of them are in ottawa obviously And um, she actually was recently hospitalized because there was a fire in her apartment in Montreal, but she appears to be doing well, so not to worry. She said she's happy. I don't know. This is maybe a couple of years ago, so maybe she's miserable. But she says, I have never been in a better place in my life, I don't think. It took me a long time to get here. My real help didn't come to me until I was 50. So I want to be the person who gives hope to somebody who says, there can't possibly be anything better out there for me. And to say, oh, yes, there is. Just reach out and ask for help. So here you can see she's channeling her mental health advocacy. She's talking about how she, how she's doing as well as her work. And she seems to, to drive a lot of joy from her work as a mental health advocate. I've got some, she has some really wonderful quotes about herself. She says, I have the best and the worst of what life has to offer. I have danced in the arms of presidents, dressed in hot couture, and I have been confined in a psychiatric institution my bank account and life in shambles. I have ridden a motorcycle through the desert, clinging to a king for all I was worth, and I have attended AA meetings with the unemployed and homeless. Changed is the order of life, and I have experienced this natural law as vividly as anyone. Hmm. So true. So true, Margaret. I know this is too many quotes, but my favorite, because the title of this is not just a rose on her husband's lapel, 
those who don't know, Kirichiro famously always wore a rose in his lapel. My favorite quote is to Michael Callahan of Vanity Fair. Michael Callahan writes, One night as I am leaving her Montreal apartment, she stands by the door, then steps towards me and envelops me in a giant bear hug, the kind seasoned grandmothers know how to deliver. As we separate, she takes my face in her hands and looks at me with those merrily mischievous blue eyes. I am not defined, she says, by the men I slept with. The bear hug didn't speak to me as, as, as it spoke to you. I think it shows her warmth. I think it's because she is like free spirit, mm-hmm. whatever. But she, but she does have this deep well of compassion. Mm-hmm. She says that I think that Justin, Justin has too. I think that seems fair. He does. He does genuinely seem to have a capacity for empathy. You know, whatever you think about him and his politics. Yeah. But I think that her kindness is. It's, it's something that people talk about a lot. People who truly know her, I think. Yeah. That, that bear hug quote is uh, is really tr- is really perfect for her, Olivia. Okay, great. Happy the happy for you. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. Like she seems to have this desire later in her life to kind of <sighs> distance herself from her relation to men and cultivate like an identity for herself that's that's like independent obviously i think it's pretty easy to problematize the fact that she's still using her most well-known married name well whatever what but whatever yeah exactly like it's i think that there's obvious (laughs) reasons well i think that there's obvious reasons to do it and like i probably would do the same you know yeah like i just think it's interesting and like it, it seems like you know she obviously made and she said that she made a concerted effort to stay out of uh, Justin Trudeau's campaign in like a like a super full on way. She just says because like she was trying to give him his own identity, but I think I really believe that a portion of that was like her own attempt to kind of distance herself from like being a Trudeau and being a a wife of a politician. Wife and, of yeah, a wife of a politician or a mother, or of. A mother of you know and and it's funny because when she talks about her children, she is very careful to not spend too much time talking about Justin always. Like, she's very, yeah. it, it seems very, like, intentional. And and you can tell, like, how much she loves Justin and how, how proud of him uh, she is. But she, you know, she, she makes sure to mention all the other children just as much. Except for Kyle. You don't really hear about Kyle. But that's neither here nor there. Wait, can I go to addressing the being her own woman kind of piece i mean that's what she's doing in new york right she wants to be an actress she wants to be a photographer you know she she loves being a mother but she wants something that's hers you know like she finishes school she gets married she pops out these babies she's the prime minister's wife she just had so little time to kind of create herself and do something that's hers and i think that her advocacy and the fact that she's kind of remained apolitical and she doesn't campaign like she didn't campaign for justin in 20. 15 or 2019 we should say mm-hmm. obviously she's his mom and she loves him and she supports him and she says nice things about him and about his mission she says something in the show about how her son may change the world did you hear that yeah <laughs> I, I wonder if she was talking about climate change i don't I, that's that's a lot yeah but she's you know she's still she's still clearly doing her own thing you yeah know? she's trying to do margaret yeah can I tell you wow. the quote that I hate the least, but I think is the Washington Post called her Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret, like was like the Princess Diana of Canada, but with a happy ending. That's the worst quote. I know. Ever. I was like, okay, how should we punctuate this? She says, I've had a very glamorous life. 
I've had a very sad life. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good way to end it. Thanks. See you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.